You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Presents podcast. This week, we bring you Kyle Bass interviewing retired General Spaulding from the Air Force. He's the former defense attache in Beijing and served as a chief China strategist for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He brings a deep knowledge of the people, culture, economy, and military of China and puts it all in context of the conflict with the United States, whether this trade war is going to escalate to Cold War and even potentially further. This is a very important interview, especially with everything going on around the world. So we hope you enjoy it. For Real Vision, I'm Drew Bissett. General, it is a, it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you today. Great to be here. So uh, very few books have been written, I think, unvarnished on what China's really doing, uh, what their grand plan is, what their grand strategy might be. And uh, your, your journey through China is one that I think people need to hear about. Uh, and, and that starts with uh, the embrace and the hope and the beauty of the people of China all the way back to, I guess, 2002. Uh, with you taking uh, taking Mandarin, learning Mandarin, and, 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 and basically embedding yourself into China. And then uh, over time, your view of that country and their leadership has changed. So I'd love to for you to walk our audience through um, your time uh, in China. Now, first of all, I'll give the audience a little background. You're an Air Force uh, general. You uh, were a B-2 pilot, I guess are a B-2 pilot. Uh, and uh, became the U.S. DOD attache to China in uh, Shanghai. Uh, and uh, tell us about, just walk us through a little bit uh, of your journey into China, taking their language, being immersive, and then, and then when did you start to understand what China's grand strategy really was? Yeah, so um, I was selected back in 2001, um, to be an Olmsted Scholar in China. It's really a, a wonderful program where three uh, mil military officers in each branch get selected each year to go live uh, and study abroad in a foreign country uh, for two years. And at the time, you have to say, hey, what country do you want to go to? And, and I thought, you know, first of all, number one, I wasn't going to get accepted as a very prestigious uh, program. But number two, what country would I pick and as I looked around the world in 2001, the most strategic country that I could think of, where there's going to be a cooperative relationship or, or an antagonistic relationship with the United States, that was still yet to be would seen. Would be China. But it would be China. Yeah. And, um, and, and so. That happened to be the year China was ascending to the WTO, right? It was. And um, so I, uh, I applied for the program, got selected, unbeknownst to me, and uh, went home, told my wife, uh, not only are we not getting out of the Air Force like I said I was, uh, we're going to go live in Shanghai. And so we moved to uh, Monterey, California. I learned Chinese over the next year, 2001, 2002, at the Defense Language Institute. And so we moved into Shanghai, uh, Pudong, which is the... Um, the eastern side, which is the more modern side of Shanghai. It's a new side that the Communist Party built up sure. uh, in the 90s and, uh, and got to experience China for two years. I studied at Tongji University, which is the premier civil engineering school uh, in, in China, and traveled all over the country. And it was the most incredible experience. My, my kids loved it. My wife loved it. I loved it. We got to know the Chinese people. 
And they were some of the most hardworking, resilient, friendly people that you'll ever meet. And, you know, at the time, I was like, this place is incredible. All of my neighbors were building uh, factories. The Fortune 100 companies were building factories in the Shanghai uh, Special Economic Zone. Um, everybody was doing well economically, not just the foreign companies, but also the Chinese people themselves. They were happy. They seemed to, to, to love yeah. Um, uh, what was going on. The thing that was interesting, uh, but I didn't challenge, was that all the people told me, hey, um, you know, we, uh, we could never have democracy here in China because, you know, the Chinese people really, um, really can't handle democracy. It, it would be too chaotic here. And, you know, at the time, I never, never thought about it. You never, not, never thought to challenge that, you know, particularly since Taiwan was uh, across the strait and they right. were... A very vibrant economy, but you know, at the, nevertheless, I thought when I left in 2004 after that two-year experience, I told my wife, I said, "I'm going to retire from the Air Force and I'm going to come back here and and, and move start move back to and move back, back to, to Shanghai." So what cha a, what changed? How how did you start to see what their grand strategy is as a as a government as the Communist Party's grand strategy? It actually started at the Council on Foreign Relations. So um, over ten years later. The Air Force decided, you know, this experience, this language, this culture, that you understand China a lot better than uh, most, and we want to push you to be um, the Air Force's nominee at some point to be um, the defense attache in Beijing. And so uh, there's a process. It, yeah. It's, a, it's a, a process to develop you to have the right um, understanding, knowledge, diplomacy, and, and other things to be able to do that. So the first step of that process was to be um, military fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And that was the first time I was really uh, exposed to the business community, the business, the financial community. And I had a really fateful um, lunch there with a, a gentleman that ran a hedge fund in, in China. And he started, we had a conversation about what's the future of China. And I, you know, believed at the time that their economy was going to stagnate. They had reached the end of their growth model and they were going to have a hard time, you know, establishing a high value added economy. Uh, going forward, and he said, no, you're wrong. They're going to plateau for a bit, and then we're, they're going to take off and then become the most powerful economy and the most powerful country in the world. And I said, that really doesn't make sense. You know, I was still, still, um, you know, had a lot of hubris uh, about the United States. You know, we have the best system. We have the best model. We're going to come out of this, and, uh, and there's no way that this is going to be the case. But, you know, that began my education on another part of China that, quite frankly, I didn't Realize, And so I moved from there to be the advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on China. And it was at that time that I began to learn what it was to be a military diplomat. I began to learn about the Chinese government. And I, more importantly, I began to learn about the Chinese Communist Party. I read documents like the Chinese Communist Party Constitution. I, I don't think so, so you weren't coached, let's say, per se, by the U.S. military at the time. They just they gave you a plethora of resources for you to figure this out on your own. Actually, no. I was taught in the standard line of diplomats to have the same point of view that the last 40 years had been taking us. And so I was taught that if um, if you want to tell the uh, the Chinese about something that's, you know, bad, like concentration camps or forced organ harvesting, always do it in private, never do it in public. And in fact, the Chinese would tell us the same things. Yes, we understand that you, you guys believe in human rights and democracy and freedom and everything. Just don't talk to us about that in public. Please do it in private. It'll be much better for both of us. You know, if, if you do it in public, then we have to, you know, be a little bit more um, uh, effusive in our, in, our, in our going against that, but we can certainly listen to your um, pleas in private. And so we were taught essentially not to air dirty laundry in public. And it really became, you know, as I watched this back and forth, what I was supposed to say to my counterparts at the People's Liberation Army and what they were telling me, we were saying the same things. In other words, they had co-opted the diplomatic language between the two countries mm -hmm. to the point where all of our talking points were essentially their talking. So they had embedded their talking points within ours. And so, so that's interesting. You're saying that not only can they control their own narrative within China, 
and they can use the Global Times and Xinhua and Taichin all over the all over the world to try to control the world narrative about China. You're telling me that they can control the U.S. military diplomat language and control even that narrative when you're over there. Right. And so um, one of the things that they'll say, and what Xi Jinping frequently says, and he says it to Davos all the time, is that globalization, we need globalization. Yeah. Right? We need to have open markets. We need to have, you know, everybody should be getting along and we should all be trading with each other. And then, so- no, Wait, what he means is he wants global open markets everywhere. He wants to participate, but not at home. And I didn't understand that until, you know, so this fateful meeting that I, and, and the, all the people I met while I was in New York, actually began to play into my, my learning about what was going on. And so in the fall of 2014, as I'm sitting in the Pentagon, reading the Chinese, so there's a Chinese Communist Party constitution and there's a People's Republic of China constitution. Most people don't know there's two constitutions. Now, when you and think why, about- Wait, why is that? So if you think about a country and you think about the sovereign of the country, so our sovereign, our State Department acts as a sovereign for uh, diplomatic purposes. In other Correct. words, when it goes across, it represents the sovereign of the United, United States, States when it uh, interacts. Yeah. When you talk to the MFA, or when I, uh, in, as a- uh, And what's the MFA? The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, okay. in China. Or when you talk to the People's Liberation Army, which is like the Department of Defense in China, you're not you're not interfacing at the government level. You're not interfacing with the sovereign. Now, in the case of the People's Liberation Army, they are actually not a member of the government per se. They are the armed party or armed component of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, when you think about a sovereign, what do they do? They control money, mm -hmm. right? They control the police force, yep. and they control, control the, the military. Yeah, right? and the they, so yeah. so essentially. All of those components are completely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, as is everything else. And so right. when you go across and you meet with Xi Jinping as, um, you know, the, the president, in reality, the component where he says decides what happens in the country is actually as the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Correct. Right? So he's really the chairman. And so when you interface, when our State Department, when Pompeo meets with the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, he's not meeting with the sovereign. Yeah. Right? You only meet with the sovereign if you go to um, the Chinese Communist Party headquarters or you, some of the some privileged people have been able to go to Zhongnanhai, but of course that's only if you're a special friend to the Chinese Communist Party. And, and, and so, so haven't you been there? I have actually been to the Chinese Communist Party headquarters once, and I was taken right. there by uh, Michael Pillsbury. So uh, I probably the only defense attache that's ever, ever stepped foot that's ever stepped foot in the Chinese Communist Party headquarters. And, and what what went on in that meeting? I, this is kind of a, a not really a non sequitur, but I'm, I'm very interested well, in, so, in, in so anecdotal I, evidence. So that so what I found out in that meeting, I was actually quite surprised. The Chinese Communist Party, since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. You know, they realize that, hey, Chinese or communist parties are going away. They used to interface on, interna on an international basis, on a bilateral basis with communist parties all over the place, particularly when the Soviet Union still existed. Right. Now that all the communist parties are going away, who are they interfacing with? Well, I was surprised to know that Democrat, our Democratic Party and our Republican Party were going over on junkets to meet with the Chinese Communist Party in the Chinese Communist Party headquarters. So that's one of the things that I, I learned. I was actually quite quite shocked about so, that. So you saw congressmen and senators on Chinese cultural exchanges being invited into the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I didn't see them, but that's what uh, they said. Yes, we're, we're doing outreach with your Republican Party. They come over and, and meet with us, and we're doing outreach with your Democratic Party. They come over and meet. I was actually uh, quite shocked. I did not know that that, that kind of behavior was, was taking place. Sure. But what I was getting in that, in, that, in, that um, in addition to getting trained as a military diplomat, I was also had another education going on. I was reading these documents, the documents of the Chinese Communist Party, and understanding what actually was going on. And so I started to realize that, in, in essence, if you look at the way the Communist Party works, it is about controlling the narrative. It is about controlling what you think and how you speak about the word China and the Chinese people. So now, even in the United States, 
or in China, when you say China dot dot dot, what comes after that is a Chinese Communist Party talking point. The narrative that says, for example, if you bring up things like concentration camps for Uyghurs or forced organ harvesting or the fact that Confucius Institutes do censorship of speech and suppression of religion on university campuses in, in the, the United, United States, States. in yep. the United States, yep. you are being racist, right? That is a Chinese Communist Party talking point. I've experienced it many times. Another Chinese Communist Party talking point is if you say something about, um, you know, Uyghurs in concentration camps or, um, you know, the uh, forced organ harvesting, then you just angered 1.4 billion Chinese people. So they wrap, the Communist Party wraps themselves into this wonderful people and culture and history that I got to know and love in 2002 and 2004 and really takes that mantle right. and says, when you're talking about the, the, the evil nature of the Chinese Communist Party, you're, 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 you're investing that in the Chinese people. And it's actually quite effective because it shields the Chinese Communist Party from scrutiny because people really can't accept that 1.4 billion people would be that you know, evil to want to have forced organ harvesting. Right. And in fact, what I began to tell my People's Liberation Army uh, counterparts is, look, most people in China don't care what you're saying. Stop saying, I've angered 1.4 billion Chinese. I remember all my friends when I'm walking around in Shanghai, I guarantee you they were wor worried about living their life. They could care less what you thought as right. a people's liberation so, army. So you're saying that the Communist Party creates its own safe harbor. And its safe harbor is any criticism of any of the evil that the government is engaging in gives them that safe harbor to just say, you're just a racist. Because you're, it's because, with, right. Yeah, don't, don't worry about what we're doing over here. You're just a racist, right? You're, it's, you're, you're, that's you're, typical, call it uh, sociopathological behavior. Yeah, because right? they're burying themselves inside the Chinese people. So when you, when you, because they hijack China and the Chinese people, yeah. only they get to speak for China and the Chinese people. The Chinese people don't get to speak for themselves. I want to, I want to, go to somewhere that you and I have talked about before because I think the listeners are going to find this to be fascinating. But you've told me something that I actually can't believe happened behind the scenes. And so you've been in the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in Beijing and in Shanghai. Uh, and when you meet with the Chinese counterparts, whether they're PLA or whether they're uh, embassy staff, you told me something that I still can't believe. Uh, what did they tell you? What, what did they say to you about U.S.-China competition when you would meet with them behind closed doors? Well, what they'll say to you is that... Again, in private. In private. What they'll say to you is, it's our time. You know, for 5,000 years, we ruled the world. We had a bad 100 years. Most of it because of your fault. Because you were... You, you, Their century of the humiliation. The century of humiliation. Yeah. But we're back and we are gonna be on top. And you, you are gonna be responding to us. Not you the meaning the United States. And you, you, said, you said they said, we're gonna clean you out. We are, we're, gonna, we're gonna dominate you. Right. We are, we're basically gonna dominate you. The Chinese you. are telling the United States that they are gonna dominate us. And this is a, behind closed doors in the US Embassy or the Chinese embassies. And, and this is pervasive around, um, not just within diplomatic, uh, circles. Circles. It's also in financial and corporate circles. In private, they'll say, look, um, you better um, figure out who is going to be running this world uh, and put yourself on the right side of that if you want to be profitable. And I've had, you know, very wealthy billionaires in this country tell me um, democracy's dead. China has a far better model. And if we want to, to, to be on the right side of history, not only do we need to adopt that model, but we need to get on their side. That's fascinating to me. So China is so good at using our own greed against us. And you say these billionaires are telling you democracy's dead and we need to adopt their model. Those are the billionaires that China has given special access to right. and made them wealthier to become evangelical about the Chinese system with a complete disregard for US national security. So there's the idea of, uh, finance and the super billionaires and the people that run these companies uh, that have big businesses in China, 
uh, and can't wait for more shekels to be invested over there. And then there's the national security apparatus here that realizes that China is our biggest competition. And in fact, they're one of our, quote, hard targets in our defense intelligence uh, analysis. And right. so there's this huge gap between, call it gap in perceptions, of the billionaires that have special access and our national security apparatus. And so one of the things, if we go back to, let's, let's go unpack a few things you said real quick uh, first. Our audience, I'd imagine, has heard something about the Uyghurs and the concentration camps in, in Xinjiang up in the, in the Northwest. Um, but let's get into more about what's happening. So I recently read uh, the UK had a tribunal and the tribunal was presided over by the, the QC uh, that, that handled Slobodan Milosevic's uh, war crimes right. trial. So they interviewed hundreds of witnesses that had escaped from Xinjiang, that had been released from Xinjiang, and even <clears throat> doctors that were part of the live organ harvesting program there. And, and when you read uh, Chinatribunal.com and you go through the summary of what happened, China and the CCP are actually taking organs out of humans while they're still alive and they're just paralyzed. Why is this something that the world doesn't know about? Why is this something that the press hasn't carried? We talk about it because we follow these things daily, but how, do, how, do, how does this get out into the, into the open so that these billionaires that say, democracy's dead, uh, we need to adopt their way. And does that mean we need to put two or three million in people in concentration camps and rip their organs out of them while they're alive? What exactly are they saying to us and how do we bridge this gap? Well, what you're, what you're, um, what you're talking about is so horrific. Like when you're confronted with it, it is, it is, it is so bad that you, you really can't absorb it. And particularly, remember, as I said, that they've taken that, the, the words China and the Chinese people and you say, a people couldn't, couldn't be like this. But organizations, you know, regimes can't. We know the Nazi regime, we know the Stalin regime, and now we know the, the, the Chinese Communist and Party even Mao, regime. Even Mao, you know. Killed millions, tens millions, of millions of tens people. Tens of millions of people, yeah. So you, you hear it for the first time and you go, it has to be. It can't be true. It can't be true. It when cannot be true. It, you, when you read the, the horror that these people are going through, it can't be true. And yet, we have one country to date that has banned traveling to China to do a transplant. To get an organ. To get an organ. And who is that? And that is Israel. And the reason Israel banned it is because a heart surgeon, who happened to also be the head of the of uh, the, um, the Organ Transplant Association For within Israel, Israel yes. at the time, heard from his patient that he was going next month to get a heart he transplant. He was making an appointment to get a heart he transplant. He had made an appointment. Right, but it was a month out. It was a month out. Right, so normally, if you're on the heart transplant waiting list, you get a call and you have to fly somewhere within right. 12 hours right. to get a heart transplant. And you have to be in, in a China, you can make an appointment to get you a heart transplant. You can get an appointment. And so the heart surgeon said, what do you mean you've made an appointment? And so he began to investigate. And what he found was the Chinese Communist Party in their People's Liberation Army uh, hospitals were essentially taking the Falun Gong and in some cases, and the Uyghurs, and, the Uyghurs, and in some cases, uh, dissident Christians. It all depends on if you're if you're matched. The reason that they know that this is going on because some people leave that, and they say, "Hey, I, my DNA was checked, and they did an ultrasound on me." Right. Right. So, so, so uh, when you when when China brings in what they call prisoners of conscience, right, which are various religious groups and dissident groups, right. They tissue type them, they blood test them, yes. and they ultrasound them. They ultrasound them. And they do it with every prisoner. Every so they prisoner. have a buffet line of organs right. to choose from. And so, and so what the heart surgeon found out is that this was going on. So he also happened to be you know, a survivor. His, he came from survivors of the Holocaust. And he, he clearly recognized the same kind of conditions that existed 
under the Nazis yeah. with going on within the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, and I think it just it goes to show you that um, there is no there is no morals invested or, 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 or um, human dignity or human rights invested in the Chinese Communist Party. It is really about as evil an organization, um, not because the Chinese people are evil, but because it seeks only power and control. And, and, and essentially, these are the things that, so he got Israel to say, we're gonna ban this. So now you, you can't go from Israel to get, a, get a, an organ transplant, but you can go from anywhere else. So to be clear, if you're in the US or Europe and you wanna make an appointment to go get an organ transplant you can do in it. China, you just, you can do it. You figure out who to call, you just right. call them up, make an appointment. Right. And it, go it's gonna cost a, you some money, yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. This, by the way, the interesting thing about how uh, Deng Xiaoping morphed communism in order to unlock the potential that China's experience was really to tie um, the human profit motive to the Communist Party's national interest. And so that's a very powerful um, formula for development and economic growth and social development. And it's what this, you know, we have owned the patent on that. We had owned the patent on that. What they did is say, okay, we're gonna, in a very narrow area, we're gonna allow you to get rich. But in all these other areas, we're gonna dictate um, what it is. The well, Communist I, Party's gonna dictate. You're right. I would say, more importantly, we'll choose the people that we want to make rich. And they'll become evangelists, and more importantly, lobbyists for the Chinese way, uh, uh, the CCP way uh, of life and business in the US. So some of China's top lobbyists are US billionaires. Right. And so when you look at kind of the end of World War II and the world that we tried to create, this idea of democratic principles, civil liberties, human rights, rule of law, went hand in hand with the idea of free trade. So there wasn't just free trade or globalization. Right. There were principles built into that. And then self-determination. So all of these things, it's in the Atlanta Charter, one page, you can read it and you can see, hey, this is a template for what we wanted to build. Well, China took that and said, hey, throw all that other stuff away. We're gonna go with globalization. <laughs> we're gonna go with right? free trade and, and forget gonna, about and, those and, other and, things. And we're gonna create a culture that only is about getting rich and then we're gonna control that. And so when you do that, when you take morality out, when you take human rights and civil liberties out, and you turn people that, you know, the, the Chinese, so Jiang Zemin said, destroy the Falun Gong. Literally destroy the people that practice Falun Gong. When he did that, he created an opportunity for the People's Liberation Army to make a profit. So they created these things and said, hey, he said destroy these people. They didn't say that we couldn't make a buck on it. And so they did, they created a business. And in China, if you wanna create a business, as long as it doesn't challenge the Communist Party, every, everything's okay. So fentanyl, fentanyl's a good example of this. It comes right out of the pharmaceutical factories, the same factories the, that are the producing- core factories The core China. factories that are producing all the drugs, generic drugs that come across from China, yeah. that's where they're producing the fentanyl. And it's just an, another business for them. It's, what's interesting about the fentanyl, so we've gone, this is the, so we're gonna, we're, let, me, let me go back to cover one more item on the concentration camps, the Uyghurs, you know, US intelligence believes it's up to three million people now. Three million people in concentration camps. And we have satellite images, Israel has satellite images, that Europe has satellite images of what's happening in Xinjiang. Right? It's one of the benefits of global technology. And when they started building the crematoria there, you know, that should have been an interesting uh, aha red, red flag moment. Right. That you're building concentration camps and and uh, cremation facilities in the same place. You know, I don't think that they're vertically integrating because uh, they think it's a good idea over time to yeah. be able to dispose of bodies. Right. You know, why hasn't the U.S. banned, call it uh, organ tra uh, organ travel? Why haven't? Right. Why hasn't the West decided to do what Israel's done? Why again? Why are we not making this front page news all the time? The New York Times did a really interesting you know, multi-day write-up on, on um, uh, the Uyghurs and the concentration camps, and then it just kind of went away. Yeah. Why aren't we talking about it more? So in addition to, to controlling the narrative on China and the Chinese people, they also are expert at obfuscation. 
So when you look across the world and you look at the two biggest nations creating influence around the world, there's Russians who do atomization. They basically break up populations. They create division between neighbors. The Chinese come in and in that, underneath that, they hide everything they do. And, it, and the Communist Party is one of the best organizations ever in history at keeping a secret about everything it does. And so- and, and you mean a secret about its grand strategy? A secret about everything. Yeah. Us, even the, our intelligence community has a, almost impossible uh, time trying to piece together what's going on because they have a great system of, of essentially hiding everything they do. It's built in to how they operate the, comp the Communist Party because right. it operate, operates so, over as a veneer over the society. Yeah. So when you control the narrative on China and the Chinese people and you hide everything you're you doing, right. It, it's not so exposed. You, we need facts the here. The secret we need of Xinjiang is none of our cameras are rolling inside there. Right. The, 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 the nightmare for the Communist Party has been Hong Kong because in Hong Kong, they want to they squash the rebellion. They want to basically annex Hong Kong. And cameras are there. And the cameras rolling. are everywhere. Rolling. Yeah. And no matter how they try to change a narrative, the West has been able and to so say, they, so they, you guys are you know, full dress of shit. people in, right? in, in the uniforms of the Hong Kong and police in Xinjiang, or whatever protesters. they close roads. The CNN tries to get in there. Right. Vice tries to get in there. They, yeah. just, they won't let yeah. you in. So, I mean, if and you so, go back. So that's it. Basically, they're able to just hide three million people in political prisons and, and getting right. organs ripped out. Right. And, and, and of course, if you get, the, if you land there, they'll put an app on your phone so that they, they're, they're making sure that they know what you're doing with your phone. They have, they, they basically lock everything down, both physically and electronically. What, think about what the U.S. Army soldiers experienced when they walked in the Dachau. Mm. I mean, the horror that they witnessed. And, and yet, this was known by people, and it was talked about. But even at the time, people could not imagine that the Nazis the could be so evil, right? right? right. So it, it's very similar okay. situation that's going on today. So let's, let's move to fentanyl generic drugs. So when I look at fentanyl, and what's happening, and, and again, I'm not an expert in this space, but I've talked to experts. Um, we lost like 75,000 lives to opioids last year alone. Right. We think 48 to 50,000 of them were fentanyl deaths. 90% plus of the fentanyl that comes into the US comes from China. So just using deductive logic, the Chinese government is killing 40,000 Americans a year on purpose, i.e. just shipping us uh, our own death drugs. And so we went to war uh, in the Middle East over September 11th, which was a, a horrible uh, day in, in, in the lives of our country uh, and the life of our country. And they killed about 3,000 people. So they're killing 40,000 a year. And what are we doing about it? Well, uh, I mean, not just killing 40,000 people a year. You have to go back to those same communities and say, what happened first? What happened first oh, is right. when they, they, came, when they joined the WTO in 2001, we lost over 70,000 factories, 3.4 million manufacturing jobs, add four support jobs for each one of those, so over 13 million jobs. So they took away America's factories, took away their jobs, and because those jobs were long-term jobs with healthcare, they took away their healthcare, and they took away their retirement funds. Right. And so they left those communities destitute. And then they started sending in the drugs and killing them. And yes, it's not because Xi Jinping said, sell Americans fentanyl. What they said was, we don't care what you do as long as it employs Chinese and, and, and makes money. I, I can tell you that the profit motive in China is alive and strong, and those guys that run pharmaceutical companies are making a ton of money that are cranking out fentanyl and shipping it to the United States. Now, the interesting thing is when you go and talk to our drug enforcement officials, like I have, they'll tell you the Chinese are cooperating with us. And, and, and I almost fell out of my chair and I said, they're shipping in 100% of the fentanyl that comes into the United States, either through the southern border, through the precursors, or directly uh, shipped to you in the mail through the postal service, or coming as press pills from Canada. It's all coming from China. And they said, well, yeah, but when we go over and we say, hey, you know, they've changed the chemical composition of fentanyl uh, to, just to make it, uh, now it's legal. Can you make that illegal and stop it? 
and they'll say, well, you know, it usually takes us a year to get that through the process, but for you, we'll do it in six months, and, and then we'll roll up a couple of these guys, and we'll put them in jail. Of course, two weeks later, they're out. Right. And then certainly six months later, they say, hey, this thing's no longer legal, and they just change the formulation it, again. It feels But we feel, because of that, because they say that those words to us, oh, they must be cooperating with us, when in fact, they're not. They're, they're, do, they're dialing the, the, it the up. The flow hasn't changed no, one no, bit. Yes, it has. It's gotten more. It's gotten well, greater. Yes. The flow continues to increase. Right. It feels to me like a reverse opium war. It is very much a reverse opium war. If you talk to them in private, they would, I'm sure that they would giggle about it. it, it, yeah. it, it, it the story, it's, to them, it's, it's, it's humorous. The, the story that I just read is they've genetically modified the poppy plant so that it can grow year-round instead of just uh, mm, that, half the year. I, I hadn't heard that. So, so this is a story that just came out in one of the medical journals uh, mm -hmm. a week ago. Uh, where they said their, their poppy crop is now up 40% because they can grow plants year-round. Now, why it hasn't doubled, I'm not sure, but maybe it's harder to grow, you know, in the wintertime. But point being is we have, we have gross human rights violations. We have one could deem to be uh, an attack on the United States. And then when we get out of fentanyl, we get into the generic drugs and what they're doing there with the residuals being right. carcinogenic and they own that business. Again, Every time you look under a rock in our relationship with China, it just seems to get worse and worse. Yeah. And it gets worse everywhere I look. Right. So why do you think we as a country, why, why do you think we even engage with them? Is it only because our profit motive, because uh, of our greed and our desire to chase El Dorado and the 1.4 billion Chinese? Why don't we open our eyes and say we're not going to interface with an evil regime? Yeah. What's your view? How so, do we fix this? So, well, so let me, I'll tell you why we don't, we don't recognize it. We don't understand China or the Chinese Communist Party. Now, when I went over in 2002 and had my first meal in a Chinese restaurant and I got the check and I didn't get a fortune cookie, I was like, where's my fortune cookie? I didn't know to realize till that moment that fortune cookies don't come from China, they actually come from the United States. It was made by a Japanese guy in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden it caught on as a thing for Chinese restaurants in the United States, but it's not actually. So what we know about the, the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party, well, who was supposed to warn us about this? Were the experts on China. Now, why didn't the experts on China warn us about the Chinese Communist Party? They were going over on junkets. Yeah. paid for by the Chinese Communist Party, granted visas by the Chinese Communist Party. Bloomberg did a fantastic article on Xi Jinping's, Xi Jinping's family when he took power and how, how wealthy they had become. And, they, and, and, and Michael Bloomberg was warned, if you don't stop this, your Bloomberg terminals will not work in China anymore. In fact, they turned them off for a while. And then This is the Beaujolais people, story. And, and all of a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden, Bloomberg's self-censoring when it comes to reporting about the Chinese Communist it's actually, Party. It's actually worse than that. I think, I think Bloomberg has gone on the offensive against China hawks. Well, I think so, because if you think about it, globalization actually helps Wall Street, right? Yes. Because they earn a fee on equities or well, bonds. Bloomberg, Bloomberg they wants they to sell. sell more terminals. Bloomberg wants to Black sell Rock more. wants more right. money. Right, exactly. It's all the it, casinos it, at the want, end, a, want more gambling. They they want this financial integration. Yeah, my to my point about tying the profit incentive to Chinese um, national Chinese Communist Party national interests, it doesn't just work in China. It works here too. Yeah. It works in Europe. It works in Africa. It works it works in Asia. All you have to do is figure out how do I get you incentivized financially or economically. Yeah. And then you'll do what I want. So, so, in so your, how do we fix it? Yeah. Right? You asked how, how do we fix it? Well, one of the ways that you could fix it, and I'm specifically talking about fentanyl now. Find one, so we just recently in, in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia at the port there, uh, or it might have been Baltimore, found something like $100 million worth of fentanyl on a ship. Now, the first time that the U.S. government says, if we find one bit of fentanyl on any ship, we're turning every single ship back, and you won't get a ship in the port for a month. And not only that, we're going to charge you for everything that was offloaded a $1,000 fine. 
The next times it comes in, it's going to be double. Why not charge them for the full value of the shipment? Why not say what, the shipping company is going to owe $100 million for this? And then when you do, ICBC's got a great um, building in New York City. AVIC has a number of assets. Bank of China has a huge Bank of building China. in New York. And you say, okay, guess it. what? We're going to take that Yeah. as compensation. Yeah. When you start levying uh, penalties on the on, Communist Party. And on their right? assets. And on their assets. Yeah. And on the nation itself, because this, the Communist Party is a sovereign, yeah. then you get behavior to change. Until you do that, if you go after companies or individuals, which is what we tend to do in a country that's about the rule of law, go. they're going to say, we don't care. Just like they can... Or harvest your organs as a Falun Gong, if you're a fentanyl producer in China and, and you happen to be rolled up by a U.S. Uh, I, indictment. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There are 1.399 billion we got, more we people got more we can go to. Go have at it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in your book, which your book is, I, find your, I found your book, I hope this isn't an, uh, uh, a negative, but I found it to be a series of amazing short stories. Right. Right. It's, 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 it is telling uh, a greater narrative, but I found each chapter to be fascinating because it was uh, kind of a, a start and a finish at every chapter. In one of the chapters, you talk about how China is actually censoring and, um, and coming after voices of opposition in the United States. Right. Talk to me about how they do that. So um, the first time I've uh, experienced this firsthand, uh, I actually came over with General Fang Funghui, who was the chief of the general staff uh, for the People's Liberation Army. As came he, over, meaning from China from to the China United to States. From China to the U.S. So you uh, escorted the Chinese general. I ex escorted him to Mar-a-Lago for the first bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and, and President Trump. And um, on the way back, so we flew out of Miami, flew to New York, got and transferred uh, from New York, flew back to Beijing. From Miami to New York, I get in the plane. I'm in the back of the plane. All the PLA is in the front of the plane. And in the back of the plane, I noticed is that- It's a commercial flight? It's a commercial flight. In the back of the plane, I noticed that there's all these Chinese people and they're speaking Chinese. So Wh I which you speak. Which I speak. So I started speaking to them. Hey, how's it going? What's going on? And then I noticed they had bandages and, and, and kind of scraped up. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? What happened to you guys? And they said, oh, we're, uh, we're Falun Gong, you know, um, the, the embassy uh, sent some people down to beat us up. We were protesting Xi. The embassy sent, the Chinese embassy sent thugs to beat up protesters in the United States. In the United States. And so what happens whenever you have a head of state, so Xi Jinping, come to the United States? This happened in September of 2015 when he came to meet President Obama in Washington, D.C., is the embassy will call, will make a call out to all the visa holders, students, you know, business, uh, any, people that any are on business visa. Any ethnic Chinese any, person any, in the US. Anybody that's a Chinese national in yeah. the US, in the region, come out, will line the streets of the approach. So they're instructed to line the they're streets. They're instructed to line the streets of the approach to ensure that no protests happen. If a protester shows up, what they're trained to do is essentially surround the protester and then beat them so that so that uh, you can't know this. And so they are essentially establishing establishing sovereignty in, on, the, United in States. the United States, sovereignty over the territory where the the um, the, the, the Communist Party leaders, the, they were doing the same thing. So did we arrest any of the people that beat these? Uh, no, 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 we didn't. In Why fact, not? you know, um, well, Primarily, the reason we haven't done um, any kind of enforcement whatsoever, ZTE on the entity list, could have been done during the Obama administration. Huawei but the State the Department list. said, no, we're not going to do enforcement on them yeah. because we want, their, we want the Communist Party to agree with us on North Korea and climate change. I see. So we're not going so to... We were willing to let many wrongs happen in the interest of maybe achieving some foreign policy goal. Every we, wrong. We would let Every them. wrong execute all the wrongs. All the wrongs, because it was more important that we had this, what we viewed to be mutually beneficial cooperative relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Nobody went over to the Communist Party side and said, do you guys want a mutually beneficial cooperative relationship? Yeah. Because they would have said, hell no, you're our en enemy. You guys created, you, you, you were the ones that forced us through the century of humiliation. That's important, right? Because the 
the people that believe that we should just uh, uh, prostrate ourselves once again and just get a deal done and deal with China and make another paycheck and, and uh, earn some more money for the billionaires, those people believe there's a symbiotic relationship right. when it's truly parasitic. Yeah. And it's interesting because they'll say, like, they'll say what I just said right now is not true because there are reformers in the Chinese Communist Party. And what they don't understand is the reformers still believe in what I'm saying. They're just willing to go a different way at it. Correct. Right? So it, rather than being in your face like the hawks are. They're not as arrogant. We want to be, we want to be more uh, subdued. We want to hide our capability and bide our time. And slowly, eventually, the Americans will go broke. Right? That's, that's, that's what role. they're trying to do. What we did to the Soviets is to basically bankrupt them. Mm -hmm. So that takes me to a point uh, that we've discussed before. Is, is she a Stalinist? Because it sure looks like that to me. Uh, they believe their Communist Party is the greatest Communist Party, and every other Communist Party right. should, should be below them but should follow their lead. Uh, and I guess the entire construct of, of that, of the Stalinist era. It, it, if he is that person, can we ever really come to an agreement with him that is uh, measurable and forcible and, uh, let's say, mutually beneficial? Can we ever get there? Okay, so set Xi aside, just as one person, because that, that would, everybody would say, well, we'll get another leader and it'll be fine, right? So the CCP, so can, so, can we get somewhere with the Chinese Communist Party? So um, in addition to reading the Communist Party uh, Constitution, um, back in 2014 to 2016. I read thousands of pages. One of the documents I read was a, was a internal Communist Party document. It was created in 2013, smuggled out, translated. It's called document number nine. Now, if you look at the, if you look at the, um, the Bill of Rights, this would be the opposite of the Bill of Rights, right? The so Bill of No Rights. This is the Bill of No Rights. Got it. And, so and so in that doc, in document number nine, they say the Bill of Rights was basically created to destroy the Chinese Communist Party. Ah. And we must, at all instances, uh, counteract Refuse that. all of those rights. We must counteract, not just refuse them, counteract them forcefully, not just within our own borders, but externally, right? So when we talk about, uh, and I talk about in the book, you know, what is, what is 5G about? What is the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent business model about? It's about creating the architecture, both technologically and business-wise, that allows commerce to flow out of China along with the values that are built into document number nine, right? So getting you voluntarily to give up free speech for money, to voluntarily give up freedom of religion for more money. Of course, eventually there's gonna be an end to it because What's going to happen is the same thing that happened to the Soviets is we're going to be essentially bankrupt. That's, what, that's where we're headed to. You say that, and or uh, one would think that the United States does have a moral compass at some point in time. And at some point in time, money uh, will not trump uh, our moral compass pointing north or at least some version of north. Um, so maybe, maybe that stops. So, uh, well, so I would actually say that that's what's going on in Hong Kong right now. Yes. So you if you could drive, draw a direct line from 1997, which when they, when, when the handoff happened, to yeah. 2047, yeah. and you say, okay, um, what they believed in 1997 is that by 2047, certainly the Communist Party is not going to be the same Communist Party. When we, if you draw that straight line, that you could almost predicted that once the Chinese people within Hong Kong realized, okay, they're not going to change. Right. There is no way in hell that they want to live in that dystopian, you know, no. place in the mainland. Just be another city they, in, in China, they, right? They are not. And so people look at, why can't you just get over this? <laughs> why can't they get over the democracy, the liberty, and the freedoms that they've had for the last hundred right. years? Why can't they just uh, mortgage that and yeah. say, you know what, well, we're going to go the Chinese way? And when we go over there, and even I lived there for two years. I lived two years in the country. And it's so easy to, to, to not actually look under the covers right. and, and look behind the scenes and see what's going but on. But that's by design. It's by design, and it's, and, and it's our inability to actually understand, because, again, they're very, they obfuscate everything they do, what the Chinese Communist Party is and how it is, uh, it, it is it built itself within that society. I'm going to finish our talk here with um, 
if you don't mind, talk about, you are also one of the experts in, in telecommunications and in, in, the, in the need for the West and more importantly, the United States to have a 5G network. And um, talk to me about uh, China's ascendancy in 5G and what their plan is with Belt and Road and, uh, and comms, telecom, and owning the data versus what the U.S. is doing and what the U.S. has got to do to be, to compete uh, on the 5G playing field and why it's so important. Because I, I think a lot of people don't understand right. why that's, call it, uh, vitally important right. to the United States national security. So we used to, we developed telecommunications. We, in Bell Labs, which was within AT&T, right. was the state-of-the-art telecommunications. And then we got out of the business, we stopped investing. So we, back in the 60s, during the Cold War, we were spending 2% of our GDP on research and development, R &D, basic, yeah. basic science research. That was going into companies like Bell Labs. That technology is what drove our tremendous economic growth after the end of the Cold War. We stopped doing that. We basically said, we're not gonna do R&D anymore. We're gonna make private sector do R&D. We're not gonna do, do federal grants for STEM education. So the guys that helped put uh, Americans on the moon, yeah. right? They were educated on federal grants, paid for Whoa. by Uncle Sam, right? So STEM education, we were paying for that. We stopped paying for that. We stopped investing in infrastructure. So now, our, you know, the, the, the highway, the national highway system that we built in the, the Eisenhower, Eisenhower Group, national highway system, yeah. we're now $5 trillion in arrears on that. It's falling apart. And so along all these areas, we just stopped investing in our country. And what happened was because we said the private sector should do investment. And you know what the private sector did? They invested in China. So they built cities, they built roads, they built telecommunications, they built companies, they built high-speed rail, and now they're building the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. right? All with our money. And so Huawei got to be what it is today by, first of all, being able to steal all of Bell Labs technology yeah. and then having U.S. money investment to help, to, to help grow it. Help grow it, so, that's right. And then they just worked out and, and started selling. Now, if you fast forward from the world that existed when Alexander Hamilton was basically coming up with the ideas that are in the Constitution. And then you say, okay, what, what, what is the purpose of the Second Amendment in the Constitution? First of all, he went through and looked at any uh, government on record to see you know, what worked, what didn't work, and his goal was to create, fashion a government where no person, party, organization, or group could gain ultimate power. Right. But he said, if we fail, we're gonna give the, the citizens the means to resist that. And that is a second uh, amendment. Second amendment yeah. If you look at what's going on today, you look at the elections in 2016 where the Russians use uh, big data analysis, artificial intelligence bots, and social media to, to create protests within the United States yeah. during the elections, right after the elections. You realize that we've reached a point where in our world, and particularly the world that we're coming to in 5G, the ability to influence you as an individual, or in other words, to oppress you, without either knowing, one, that you're being oppressed, or two, who's doing the oppressing, really means that our world, in terms of how society functions, has gone beyond the point where a gun actually has any relevance in keeping you free anymore. Right? right? Because who are you gonna right. shoot? Right. You're just as likely say the Russians, for, to, for them to encourage you to shoot your neighbor because yeah. you've been led to believe that your neighbor is your, is your adversary. And so in that world, in the world, this is a world, by the way, we designed yeah. because we were the second country in the world to build a 4G network. That's a pipe. The platform, Android and Apple, built by two uh, American companies, were built actually to, build, to be private data Devices, devices. They, so they, all the app services and business models that were built on top of app platform, all accrued to us because we were the second country to build a 4G network and yeah. the first country to build a smartphone. So if you go back to 2007 when the iPhone came out, the top five in market tap, Cap, AT&T, General Electric, Exxon Mobil, Shell, and Microsoft. Fast forward 10 years, it's the Fangs: Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. If you fast forward another. 10 years from now, and you build the 5G network, well, what happens in 5G is a smartphone goes away. You no longer need 
a phone because the world's wired around you. So you walk out the, um, the hotel today and you say, I want an Uber. And a camera picks up your face, knows you are, has facial recognition, reads your lips, or a microphone picks up your voice. Uber shows up, you get in, it bills you. All of that data right now is accessible to the Chinese Communist Party. And then all of a sudden, you know, you decide, Kyle Bass said, I'm going to um, point out something that the Communist Party did, so I'm going to tweet about it. All of a sudden, the next time you walk outside your door and ask for an Uber, Uber doesn't show up. <laughs> This is a world, this is a world. But that's a world no one wants to live in. But it is a world that currently exists in China. I understand. And actually, is, if you go and live there as a digital citizen, yeah. I, as their I social, have. Their social credit score They are is, so far advanced in front of it us. It would make it's George Orwell blush, right? Uh, it, it's, 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 it is literally incredible. You walk into a restaurant, and a camera picks you up, and it says, hey, and the, and the, and the server says, hey, Kyle, here's your food. Yeah. Right? That's what's going on. So it's like a... Between a 4G but why, and 5G why world. is 5G so important? Because it is a platform. The, the mobile phone goes away. So computing and networking are blend. The pipe and the, and the platform for building the app services and business models that, and that, you, are, that are currently being built in China. So Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, just like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google became dominant. So you had AT&T, General Electric, and Microsoft. Yeah. Now you want Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, What's happening, because China's building the first 5G network, the platform, in China and around the world, they've got 90 countries signed up now, their companies, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, will build the app services and business models on top of that, I see. and they will become dominant But over China Facebook. will own the data. They, they'll they, own the they'll data. They'll own the data for 90 they'll countries. They'll own the data. And, and therefore, own, they'll be able to control the network. And the other thing that they're putting in there is electronic payments. So they'll not only control the data, they control the, 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 the financial flows. Well, that's their way out of their crazy money printing. Right. If they can somehow get these African nations to start accepting their monopoly money, which so right. far hasn't happened. But. Because as you know, as you said, the fact that they don't have dollars really precludes their growth unless they figure out some scheme. The world to do still so. hasn't accepted their currency, right? Less than, right. Less than uh, nine tenths of 1% of global commerce happens in their currency. Yeah. Uh, in the so. end, global commerce, finance is all about trust and yeah, nobody no, trusts. No one trusts them. Right. And so we need to work as a country with a whole of government approach uh, to exposing, uh, let's say, all the wrongs and the grand strategy of our biggest competitor and stop letting the, the Wall Street elite and the Wall Street billionaires um, evangelicalize uh, or evangelize uh, the, 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 the potential profits of uh, the El Dorado somewhere hiding in, in China. And FDR and Winston Churchill showed the way. So the two countries' leaders coming together saying democratic principles, rule of law, free trade, self-determination. This is the system, international system we want to build. So what uh, um, Secretary Pompeo's State Department officials are going around on a bilateral basis talking to our allies. Either you need to get on board economically, trade-wise, financial, internet, and, and work with us to fix, to right this ship, or we can no longer be a, a military ally of yours because you're essentially undermining our ability to protect ourselves. Because right. far more than playing ships and tanks today, protecting our data and protecting our economic and trade and financial systems really drives geopolitics today. Yeah. Greece and the Port of Piraeus really has more to say about how Greece responds to China than how many aircraft carriers we have. In fact, right. Greece doesn't care. Greece doesn't care about- Well, the they already country. sold the port. They already sold the port. <laughs> so it, to sum things up, it looks to, it, it, basically what you're telling, uh, telling me and telling the, the world here is China's already fighting on three fronts. They're fighting on the information war side. They're fighting on the cyber war side, which is different. Right, they're controlling the narrative and then uh, infiltrating networks and, and spying and doing whatever they do offensively with cyber. Uh, they're also fighting an economic war on a large scale against us today. And the only thing they haven't done yet is launch a conventional weapon against us. But to your point, the war, the next world war is going to be one of those three or a combination of the three and maybe not even have that fourth one happen. China wants world domination without ever firing a shot. And we've just figured this out. Would you right. say that we've just, as a country, become woke in the last uh, few years? Yeah, we just become woke. The war's 
the, actually the war has been going. War, so I believe the way you characterize war has changed. Yep. It's fundamentally changed, and it's primarily about finance and economics and information. Correct. And, um, and that information piece being so important is why we said in the national security strategy we need to build a nationwide secure 5G network. In other words, not only does the government need to protect its own data, which we become very adept at in right. DOD and the intelligence community, we need to protect your data, right? Because that's what guarantees your rights as a citizen to be free in a 21st century context. And until we figure that out, we can have the greatest Air Force in the world, the greatest Navy, the greatest Army, the greatest Marines. But if we're not protecting your data, we're not protecting your freedom in the world the way we need to today. General, thanks very much for spending the time. It was, a, it was an honor and a, and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.